0: You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Labor, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's a song. It's our favorite melody. It's a song. Give it Petrie is a native of uh, cut off Louisiana. Uh, he lives in New Orleans now, and he's, his, his work has taken him th- throughout the world to a lot of different places. But fortunately, he spends a lot of time and has given a lot of attention to Louisiana, and especially uh, South Louisiana. He's a film director. And his first uh, big film was in 1986. Uh, Billy there, the Cajun. and I remember uh, seeing it at the theater, and it's a good film. Anyway, he's done a whole series of them, uh, and including in 2002, did something called The Scoundrel's Wife, uh, did a thing on Hurricane on the Bayou, which is really just a moving and riveting uh, film about Hurricane Katrina. So we'll talk about some of his things, but, but most recently, uh, he's been part of a, a project of a documentary uh, called um, Mary Queen of Vietnam. And this is in reference to a church in Eastern New Orleans, which is, I guess you call it, the center of the Vietnamese community. And the Vietnamese story in Louisiana is really a fascinating one, and it's one that's still still, uh, emerging. Anyway, hi, Glenn. Thanks for coming.
1: Oh, it's great to see
0: you, Errol. Okay. Uh, Tell us about the Vietnamese migration to Louisiana. Why did they come here in such great numbers?
1: Well, The first part of that story is why they left in such great numbers Uh, when South Vietnam uh, fell to the north uh, and and American forces evacuated 1975 um, and Saigon fell. uh, People left the country in droves, I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions. I mean, nobody knows the exact number. Uh, Huge numbers drowned at sea. Uh, They were called the boat people because uh, basically the, the most likely way to get out of the country was on fishing boats, uh, which were often overloaded, they were attacked by pirates, I mean literally attacked by pirates, Uh, countries didn't want to take them in, Um, and eventually America accepted nearly a million refugees uh, from Vietnam in, in the space of a year. I mean, they came here seeking asylum, uh, and there were big uh, there were big refugee camps, and it was the Archbishop here in New Orleans, Hannon at the time, uh, who basically went up to the big camp in Arkansas and recruited them to come down. Um, in Vietnam, uh, Catholics are a, a minority, like twelve percent of the population. Um, but they were, especially by the communists who took over, they were a, a minority that was oppressed. And so they weighed more heavily in, in, the, in the exodus. And certainly in, in the ones coming to, you know, I mean, most Vietnamese are Buddhist. In New Orleans, probably they're, they're, they're almost certainly more Catholic Vietnamese than they're Buddhist, but, but they're both, both communities. And they settled in New Orleans East, they settled on the West Bank, Uh, because they left by boat a lot of them were fishermen back in the old country and became fishermen again uh, because it was similar terrain similar climate and and similar resources and you don't need to speak English to, to fish for a living.
0: So where did they arrive in the United States before going to Arkansas?
1: Well, that was sort of first stop. I mean, they, they they flew them into whatever airport, but that was a big. Oh, so they flew. Okay. It, it was it was an old army base, and they just turned over the barracks into housing refugees. I mean, they didn't I mean there was nothing set up. It it, it happened fast, and it was a, a a worldwide crisis. And and you know, again, other countries were taking them in as well. Uh, but they were they were put into these. I mean, just like you see in northern Syria and things, you're put into these big, uh, you know, I won't say tent cities, but but you know, similar similar to that, uh, and the big communities formed here in New Orleans, in Houston, in Southern California, and in uh, Orange County, south of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, San Jose, Portland, I mean, there, there, were, there became nodes where lots and lots of Vietnamese gathered because in, you know, the, the safety in numbers, uh, you know, they're trying to rebuild their lives and having, being around fellow countrymen, even though there were people that didn't necessarily know back in Vietnam, being around fellow countrymen made, lo- made it, the transition somewhat easier. Now, to make the transitions from Arkansas
0: and then to come to New Orleans and then to establish a life and the, all the issues you're going to have with the housing and uh, whatever, did the archdiocese lead the way on that? Or was that the federal government or was there some kind of separate agencies?
1: Well, I mean, there was a little bit of everything, but the archdiocese had a lot to do with it because I mean, we're talking 45 years ago and uh, you know, a lot of the things we take for granted today, I mean, you can bad mouth FEMA all you want, But FEMA today is a lot more robust thing than they had back then. There were, you know, lots of the social service programs, both state and federal, just didn't exist or were just in rudimentary form. Um, So, yeah, the the Catholic Church helped a lot, but in large part, they were on their own. They were on their own and, and, and figuring it out and figuring out how to make a living and how to, you know, crowd into apartments until they could save up enough to buy a house and 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 on and on and on
0: now eastern new orleans for those who don't know it is um, it's a it's it's a big territory but it's really never met expectations you know it was once the home (laughs) of the of the the michu and the space center and well they still have that but it's not still is yeah it's not what it used to be There have been all kind of plans for it from amusement parks and different things residential bases, scattered, but it's never really done everything. And so having a population of Vietnamese, especially very industrious as they they seem to be, seemed like just that area needed I I
1: mean, maybe Eastern New Orleans needed them more than the the other (laughs) way around. Well, that could be, and uh, uh, growing up in Cut-Off, uh, in the surrounding marshes, there were all these big square lakes and there was the square lakes were there because in like the 1890s, early 1900s, there were these land reclamation projects that were going to turn it into the new corn belt. And of course, most of those things didn't work out and they eventually flooded and became big square lakes. Well, New Orleans East is kind of the same terrain. I mean, it's it's low-lying wetlands for the most part. And, and uh, you have some ridges like where Chef Mentor Road is, where they built Michaud and the Folgers coffee plant and where they built, you know, Versailles, which is that Vietnamese community. Um, but a lot of it is, is, you know, it's I won't say it's not habitable, but it's, it's, it's not high and dry. And the lore
0: has been though, the fact that it's, it's the waterway that it, that it does give fishing opportunities.
1: It gives, it got fishing opportunities. It was available. Uh, it was, you know, more welcoming than most, especially if you're arriving en masse as a group like that, because uh, it wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily a crowded part of the city. But, you know, as time has passed, the Vietnamese population, you know, on the West Bank and in New Orleans East has is, is spread out through the city, especially, you know, the their businesses. Yeah.
0: Now, the documentary, um, Mary Queen of Vietnam, the origin of this is that um you also teach at LSU, right? you you teach yep. films? Make, okay. I, I'm
1: I'm uh, I'm called professional in residence because I don't have all the degrees you need to be a okay. professor. Okay. <laughs> but uh but it's equivalently the same thing. And yeah, this started uh you know, they're always encouraging me to build my classes around you know, my film projects and this started out as as just that and you know we had a class around shooting it and then a class around editing it and and then it laid fallow for a year and one of the students who is from that community whose name is Balno uh stuck with it and um and you know I I remained interested and and so we said let's you know when COVID hit and all the teaching went online said let's finish this film uh and so over the you know, the last half a year or so, uh, we buckled down and went back to it and 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 finally, you know, finally got it in 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 fighting shape, as it were. So it was it was ready for, for broadcast. Um, it was you know I've done you know, I've done historical dramas, I've done thrillers, I've done documentaries, I've done museum films, I've done immersive films that are all around you. I've done a little bit of everything. Um and and the ones that are the most fun are the ones like this one where you start out thinking it's one thing, and then you peel back a layer and you find something else, and then you peel back a layer and find something else, and you know we began with something that was going to be about the fest their Tet festival. Tet is the lunar new year, happens within a week or two either side of Mardi Gras every year. It's it, it's a floating date like Mardi Gras. Um, and they have a huge festival every year. And they bring in acts from the West Coast and here and there and their musical acts and the whole community, you know, their drum corps and their lion dancers and there, there's a fashion show and their young women doing fan dances. And, and it's all, they practice year round to get ready for this festival. And the food, I mean, they're like, you know, you know <laughs> seemingly miles of, of, of booths you know, all having all these different Vietnamese delicacies. It's a a wonderful thing. And that was going to be our film. And that's the first thing we shot, basically. And then that opened the window to, wow, you know, this community in and of itself is interesting. So let's, let's dig a little deeper. And we started doing that. And in the process of doing that, realized that, you know, looking at this community that's been here 30, 40 years, uh, arrived as, as asylum seekers, not speaking English. They weren't white. They didn't, you know, not a penny in their pocket, most of them. Uh, I mean, this is a great window to, you know, for all the talk we have about asylum seekers and immigrants and all, what happens a generation later? What happens after they've been here a while? How? you know, how does their culture change? What do they lose? What do they add? What do they give back to the people around them? Uh, and and so we're able to make a film that on one hand had all the fun and spectacle and you get to to be at the festival, but you also get to see, uh, you know, how people live, uh, you know, and, and those different generations because, you know some of the original boat people one of the women in the film talks about you know she had to, to bury a four-month-old child at sea did not survive the exodus Uh and you know here she is all those decades later i get choked up just thinking about it and then, imagine
0: oh, how horrible that is oh can have you to, imagine have to bury your own child at sea
1: can you imagine and you know and on the other hand you have you know high school we have high school kids and and college kids in the film who you know you know except for facial the asian facial features you talk to them and you you know they look at, and act and talk as american quote unquote american mm-hmm. as, as any other kid but it's not that simple because i mean we have one high school guy who's like he's the running back on his high school football team but then football season you know ends and that's when he really starts training because he's one of the lion dancers who do all these very acrobatic you know lion dance is a two-person costume and they do these wildly acrobatic stunts um you know as part of the ted festival every year and, and, and that' a lot to look at it. it's a lot harder than football um and so you're, you're seeing all these things and and, and these unexpected things. it was just it was fun. it was fascinating for me and just the community was so welcoming um, to be at um, uh, I, f- I went one night I was told to film the the, the Good Friday. Come for Good Friday, come for Good Friday, come for Good Friday. So I went and this is a Good Friday service in the church and I filmed it and you know, packing up and going to leave. And and uh, they said, no, 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 stay, stay, stay. We're gonna do the way of the cross. Okay, so I mean the way of the cross was pretty dramatic because it's that same song I grew up hearing as a Catholic then in cut off, except it's sung in Vietnamese. Uh and it's outdoors. It's, Okay, it's pretty dramatic, but then that ends and everybody's starting to go home and I'm packing up and they say, No, 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 stay, stay, stay. And as so everybody's leaving, they say, Oh, they're just going home to eat. They're coming back. And they come back, and there's this ceremony like I'd never seen before, where you know, people in white robes with the white headbands and they're women and men and they're chanting. Uh, this prolonged ceremony called the Lamentation, these chants that go back to the 1500s. And then they unbolt the big life-size Jesus from the cross at the front of the church and fold down his arms and put him in this big glass casket lit up by LED lights. And there's this procession. And we're talking hundreds of people do this procession out the church and through the parking lot and up to the stage where where the uh, the festival happens every year. Uh, and they built... The tomb of Jesus. I mean, it's like big paper mache stone rolled out of the way. And uh, and bury him in popcorn. And and then
0: yes, if you're listening, he did say bury him in popcorn. <laughs> it
1: did say bury him in popcorn. But this
0: needs explanation, yes.
1: <laughs> well, I heard a lot of different explanations. The, the one the one that struck me, again, I'm not a scholar, but the one that struck me as most plausible is in Vietnam you do it with these white flowers and you just can't get that many white flowers that are at an affordable cost here. Um, and so they use popcorn, uh, but I'm, and again, they're like 600 people in line, marching the last of it on their knees to kiss the feet and take some popcorn. And I'm the only, you know, non-Asian face in the crowd with the camera on my shoulder. And, uh, and this elderly gentleman sidles up to me and says, want to see inside the tomb? <laughs> said well yeah. <laughs> and so i go around back and here's this guy with a like a box like like a washing machine comes in and it's full of pre-popped popcorn and he's replenishing the casket cuz as people that take their handful and it empties out. So he's, he's replenishing the thing inside the tomb. I mean stuff you didn't, you know, know, or at the festival, get to go in the the dressing rooms as the singers are ready to go on. It just is, it was great. It was great. It was so welcoming.
0: Well, you know, if I think back of that migration to New Orleans, I don't recall any real negative to that, any real, I mean, there's been times over and over throughout history where you have a group from another country, another culture, they come in and there's always problems that develop. I don't recall those kind of problems with the Vietnamese. From the very beginning, they seem to have like a very positive image.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly there were um, uh, you know, there were there were incidents. There were things. I know it was big things in 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 Texas where the Ku Klux Klan got involved trying to drive them out and stuff. I mean, it was uh
0: And that was more economic competition, wasn't it? Like with the
1: the fishing and the... well, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, se- you know, once the clan gets involved, it's hard to separate. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and I know here there was economic competition. I mean, I remember in the seventies, you know, being, you know, gatherings of, you know, you'd be at the shrimp shed selling your shrimp or selling my shrimp and uh, you know, and hearing people complain that the Vietnamese fish too hard. They fish too hard, meaning they 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 work they work so hard they put us all to shame, mm-hmm. um, but you know that's you know uh, time passes. I, I think it was a big milestone when uh, you know all the 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 roadside the you know, out in the rural areas the roadside Chinese restaurants started owning up to be. To being Vietnamese restaurants, which is what they were all along, but they didn't call themselves that at first. Well, it seems like it's quite common, like for ethnic groups, that one of the
0: quickest ways to dis- establish themselves is culinarily. I mean, to do it with food, uh, mm-hmm. and that's one area that people who weren't part of that ethnic group will are interested in and in trust. So you start with the Italians and the the Chinese and yeah. and certainly good food the Vietnamese. Is good
1: food. Yeah, absolutely absolutely good food is good food and, and, reput- good. and the
0: reputation is growing with a uh, um with the food i mean i mean and you're right some food some restaurants uh, that were chinese that always called themselves chinese now have a vietnamese section on the menu right. you have right. restaurants like mofo i don't know if you're familiar with that i mean that's american okay but he has a a good section of it that's vietnamese cuisine it's yeah. very influenced with it.
1: Um, I, I know down the street from me here, they just opened a a, a Viet Cajun brew pub. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> a, that's a lot of things blended together there. And there is really sort of like a
0: a combination between the the Cajun cuisine. I mean, they're both yeah, you know, certainly the Cajun seafood and the and the, and the and the and the Vietnamese food.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bao again, Bao No, who's you know, I, produ- I wrote and produced the film he directed um, and uh, sort of a, 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 an exchange going with his mother, who I've never actually met. <laughs> I mean, COVID sort of got in the way of, of that. But, you know, I, I send her pots of gumbo and sauce pican and stuff in containers and she sends me pho and these dishes I can't pronounce in containers. So we're, we're, we've been sampling each other's food. I remember uh, one time talking to, uh,
0: to John Besch during Happier Days for him, and uh, he was saying that he had been asked to be a judge at a Vietnamese event, and he was just stunned, uh, especially one of the things he had to judge was the uh, the fish soup, which was a whole lot like the gumbo, uh, yeah. you know, with different seasonings, maybe different sort of vegetables, but just thought it was really great cooking. Yeah. and certainly yeah. that uh that bread their equivalent of the french bread is really good i mean i hate to say it but, but some people could say it's better than the, the french bread here and then where they're really stealing the show is the king cake uh i mean i mean i mean that king cake is really really popular
1: yeah the the bread I, I don't i can't speak to the king cake but i know the bread uh the secret i was told now i'll give it to your listeners here is they used ten percent rice flour mixed in with wheat flour and that makes that's what makes it lighter and gives it that that nice crust okay um,
0: yeah it does have a good, a good flavor um in you, your, your documentary um you tell the story and you show uh councilman Nguyen. uh you know someone who actually you know grew up here and is actually uh now a member of the city council
1: born in vietnam Yeah. I mean, and that was, I mean, I guess the first, who who does not appear in the film, but uh, Congressman Cow, Yeah. First rep when William Jefferson crashed and burned, you know, lasted one term in Congress, but, and then, uh, you know, Cindy Wynn made it to city council and, and yeah, the community is, you know, maturing, it's taking its place. And, 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 uh, you know, I think most people would say rightful place, uh, you know, reflecting its population and it, it, it's, uh, its economic impact. And, and uh, they're a big part of the fabric of the city.
0: And they've always seemed to be good students. Like, I remember hearing stories about how great the Vietnamese students were compared to the American students.
1: You know, it, that's one thing that comes up a lot in the film is the push for education, but also, uh, you know, what happens to that? Because, you know, and part of that, I think, is undoubtedly integrally Vietnamese, but a lot of that too is Im- is any immigrant culture. I mean, they're the ones who left the country were the ones with ambition and wanted a better life for their kids, and they are going to push their kids. Um, you know, some of those kids, you know, feel the pressure, <laughs> and um, you know what what happens to that work ethic. Uh, that you know, pretty extraordinary and obvious work ethic when you get a couple of generations down the line. I don't think we have an answer to that yet, but, uh, but it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question that also applies to other immigrant groups along the way.
0: And I guess they're all detached indeed. Some of them never even knew the old country. There's probably not much yearning for the old country uh, there.
1: Well, certainly not under its current regime. Uh, although, you know, I do, did meet people, I mean, there's one woman, you know, who's 20, you know, who's been back four or five times to visit her cousins. Um, so there, there is some going back, but, but there's not much love lost for the uh, communist regime. In fact, the festival begins, and this is one of the scenes featured in the film, the festival begins with the singing of the national anthem, but it's the national anthem of, of South Vietnam. I mean, South Vietnam that stopped being an independent nation in 1975, but there's still, you know, the 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 diaspora still singing that original national anthem.
0: Yeah, let me clarify one thing because the sun is around a celebration called Tet, Tet. But a lot of Americans are familiar with the Tet Offensive.
1: The Tet you know, Offensive, the, yeah. You know, <laughs> they heard when they're growing up. And that there's was no,
0: like a bloody attack on the north, on the south. So this is not connected. There,
1: there's nothing uh, inherently offensive about Tet. Tet is the new year. And the new year, it's it's the Asian calendar, which is measured by the moon. So, I mean, it's often called the lunar new years. Uh, but Tet is the Vietnamese word for that. Uh, the fact of the Tet offensive is... is uh, is equivalent to the Yom Kippur War in 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 the Middle East, uh, which is you if you're gonna have a huge, overwhelming secret attack, you try to do it when your enemy's guard is down, and a holiday is a likely time to do that. You know, people are not, you oh, yeah. know, they're home celebrating; they're not they're not on alert. Uh, so that's why it was at Tet.
0: Uh, with me is Glenn Pitre, uh, who's a, a filmmaker. Uh... He had the latest is a documentary called uh, *Merry Queen of Vietnam*, but you may have remembered some of his earlier films, including *Belle there, the, the Cajun, and, and *The Scoundrel's Wife*. Let me ask you about uh, *Belle Époque*. That was what in '86 that you did he that?
1: Shot it in '85, came out in '86.
0: I mean, that was pretty ambitious. I mean, here you are, a young guy in the Bayou, and you're doing this. Really, I mean, this is like a major, a major
1: film. <laughs> it was for me. <laughs> it certainly had. Uh, I mean, by Hollywood standards, it was a small film, but by my standards, it was so much bigger than the ones I'd done previously. It was also the first one I did in English. Before that, I was doing films in Cajun French, with you know subtitled in English. Uh, but we, you know, we had the house record in places like Homa and Abbeville and Galliano, and the theaters down there uh, with those Cajun French films. Uh, but Belisere was, was a big step up, uh, in large part, thanks to what was then a very new institution called the, the Sundance Institute, which Robert Redford had just founded. And Belisere went through the director's lab there, I guess, in the second year of Sundance um, and eventually premiered at their festival. Um, and, and it, But that... That assistance, you know, made it possible to get, you know, you know, major actors, and and helped with the financing, and just helped with, uh, you know, being. So able Robert
0: to, did Robert Redford sit in with you
1: and go over the film and say, "I like oh, this." And yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, and and Robert Duvall, who had won the Oscar that year, uh, came play a cameo. He played a preacher at a funeral in one of the scenes. Um, so, yeah, that was a big thing. That was a big We have thing.
0: this quote, American Film Magazine once called you the father of Cajun cinema.
1: Yeah, and I, I was like 24 at the time or something. I was a little old to be a dad, but there you go. <laughs> there you go. Now, you Belizear
0: know. is based on an actual character. The, wasn't he the original Cajun they, settler, Belizear, or
1: No, there was a story of, a, I had heard, at a party, you know, people come up to you. when, when you do what I do, people are always coming up to you, and say, I have a great idea for a movie, I have a great idea for a book, I have a great idea for this. And and occasionally they do, <laughs> you know, occasionally they do. And it's not something I could do or would do, but occasionally they do. And this was a case where a fellow told me about his great grandfather who had um, been arrested for, who was a musician and a folk healer and had been arrested for the murder of a, a a local vigilante captain and eventually the charges were dropped and he moved in with the widow of of, yeah. <laughs> of of the guy who was supposed to have been his victim and that seed i mean that's kind of all he knew and that seed became uh the seed that became Bellazar eventually played by Armand Desanti
0: okay
1: yeah we ran around the world with that one got translated to 35 languages. and uh, But yeah, you know, taking stories like that and converting them into film or fiction. I mean, that's, I mean, that's always been my highest joy. Um, you know, last summer, I had a, a new novel come out the first one since the 90s. I had not had a novel out since the 90s called Advice from the Wicked. And, you know, was able i mean it follows uh you know a mother a young mother and a ne'er-do-well son as he grows up uh but it starts at the hurricane during the hurricane of 1893 and it ends during the hurricane of 1915 and in between you know you you see what the coastal life is like and you see what you know plantations like and you wind up in storyville in new orleans uh but along the way, I get to mix in all the tales. Yeah, I won't say all, but so many of the tales I heard along the way, and stories, and 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 little bits of sometimes history, sometimes folklore. Um, yeah, I, I'm one of the luckiest people I know because at at several points in my life, I've actually gotten paid. I mean, I, I routinely get paid to tell stories, it film or text or or live on stage. But I've also been paid to listen to stories, to do oral histories, um, and and I've heard so many wonderful things, which later became the basis of of, of bits of uh, you know uh, one one woman told me she got the 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 showboat broke down in her Bayou village. Uh, and like 1912, and she got hired as sort of the the maid for the couple that ran it, and it was all this intrigue and familial intrigue, and 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 and, and all the tricks behind they do behind the shows on the showboat and everything else, and that became the basis for a play. Uh, you know, the my very first film, La Fie Jean, Yellow Fever, <laughs> about a pandemic. Uh, in Louisiana, um, you know, came from stories I'd heard from, from my grandparents growing up, how they lived through the the yellow fever epidemic in nineteen oh five. Um, you know, you know, so Belazaire was the same. This, you know, all on and on. There was one movie I directed for uh, Lionsgate, uh, a Western, and it said really nothing to do with Louisiana we were shooting in Texas it was all Hollywood actors Oscar winner George Kennedy's in it Billy Zane who was the villain in the in Titanic is in it and all these other actors um, and I got to do a polish on the script before you know before we went into production and so I set the story in, in, in Louisiana during the Thibodeau massacre which is you know, a historical, a little known but historical event. Um, so, whenever I can, I would, I would, you know, bring these tales. Uh, sometimes unrelated tales, sometimes based on stuff here, but I, I would try to tie them back to the, the lore of, of Southeast Louisiana because there's just so many stories to tell. There's just so many stories to tell.
0: Well, in in 2002, the scoundrel's wife. And that was about. That's uh, during the early days of World War II, and it's about spying and intrigue along the Gulf Coast. Did Absolutely. that come from stories that you were you were hearing?
1: It, it well, like all the best of them, it came from stories I heard growing up. Uh, but then you you start to do the historical research, and you find out. I mean, there were between Pearl Harbor and say mid 1943, there were 56 ships sunk in the Gulf of Mexico by German U-boats. Wow. Um, and there was widespread belief that local fishermen were supplying those U-boats. And you hear the tales about, you know, this, the one U-boat got sunk and that, you know, French French bread wrappers from golden Meadow floated to the surface. Uh, but you hear all these tales and, and you know, down on the bayou, people name names and say which family it was and who it was and how they did it and stuff. Um, but then you realize there were some, I mean, nobody ever proved that the locals were supplying these boats. Uh, but these boats were certainly out there and they were certainly sinking ships. And uh, I mean, I still own an, uh, an anvil, great giant anvil uh that my grandfather salvaged out of a freighter that sunk off Timbalier island you know he was working his oyster beds and he saw the smoke and went went salvage what he could um so yeah i mean these these are but then you get to play then you get to you know like any good storyteller you you're going to elaborate you're going to make it uh, as good a tale as you can you're going to make uh pick what may be historical event, but you gotta people it with characters who feel real and important and interesting to whoever's watching or reading or, or listening. Yeah. Um and and that's that's the trick. That's the fun part. I mean again, I'm the luckiest guy around, but I get to I get to dream up stuff and then and then when things go well, uh eventually put that dream on a screen or in a book so that I can share it with other folks. I and mean, that's, uh, I could ask for nothing better.
0: Now, in the case of the uh, the scoundrel's wife, then the scoundrel would have been someone who was supplying the U-boats?
1: Well, the story begins, the scoundrel's wife, the, the, the scoundrel is, is, is dead when the movie starts. You see him in the opening credits, uh, but the late husband, and his widow uh were accused. It's yet another story. It, uh, back in, I want to say 1890s, there were there were laws passed that Asians could not immigrate could no longer immigrate into the United States. Uh, you know, keep out the yellow man. In fact, the, the which is coming around to where we started on this with the Vietnamese community, but it was aimed mostly at Chinese. Uh But of course, where there's a will, there's a way, and people would smuggle in Chinese immigrants. You know, and the stories get told of, just like, you know, people smuggling in marijuana. You see the Coast Guard, you dump all the bales overboard. Um, They would have the Chinese on deck, hiding in barrels and they saw the Coast Guard cutter we come in and, and they would roll the barrels overboard and let them drown, as opposed to being caught with the contraband, the human contraband, which is horrific. Um, and that's what he was accused of, hence, hence the scoundrel. And this is the widow. So when People start suspecting somebody's aiding the U boats, fingers point at her because she seems, you know, a likely candidate. And then, of course, she's got a son and a daughter, and there's much more. There's a story. Uh, St- Tim Curry plays the village priest, who, in reality, in Cutoff, the town where I'm from, uh, during World War II, the priest was run out of town. I mean, a mob formed. The sheriff had to come down to escort him out the people had complained to archbishop rummel that he was he was pro-german but archbishop rummel was also german and and didn't really do anything about it and was he
0: related to the uh, to general rummel and the, uh, uh, that, I don't, know. that I, think, I don't know i think but, it was like a distant cousin yeah
1: but father weiss who was a priest in cutoff got run out of town and uh, uh you know, and people said he, he had a shortwave radio that he was talking to the U-boats with and that he hid it in a tomb in the cemetery. I mean, none of that was ever proven, uh, but he was, you know, he was certainly, I I, I had, an, my Aunt Viv, who's 93 now, still with us, says that as a young girl taking catechism with him, that at one point during, you know, it's like you know, the battle, I think it was battle of I forget which battle, but some European battle, you know, and and the priest would say, Yeah, we beat you last week, we beat you mm-hmm. last week. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> making it's, it that seems a bit of a stretch, but she says she was there. Now Tatum O'Neill was in this film. Yeah, or as we like to say, uh, Academy Award winner, Tatum O'Neill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and her um, role was what? She was the wife. She, she was, was the wife, the, okay. she was the lead she was yeah you also had julian sands who was actually back in town week before last shooting another movie uh but uh i mean he's been in like 150 movies and all
0: yeah yeah if people people are interested
1: in seeing i mean not the whole film but you can see clips of this and bellows and all these things on our website which is uh uh, www cajun movies just like it sounds
0: okay .com. and we'll come back and we'll mention again a little bit later um roger ebert some people may remember a Cisco in ebert yep. um once referred to you as a, a legendary american regional director
1: yeah yeah which was <laughs> which felt pretty good yeah yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah you like to be a legendary yeah. and and uh you know, somebody said, well, the regional is kind of limiting. I said, no, the regional the whole point. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, I, I I worked for Hollywood for money uh, a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but my heart was always here. And, and whenever I could, I'd do the films here. Um, you know, when I was getting started, there was, you know, Eagle Pinnell in Houston, and there was me here in New Orleans, and, the, you know, this guy in Tallahassee. Uh, uh, Victor Nunez, and you know, so we're, we were doing feature films on the Gulf Coast. Uh, you know, is it, it was a different time. It's so gratifying now to see all the young filmmakers. Uh, you know, now that that the, you know, the skills are more widespread, the equipment's more affordable, uh, and more portable, and, and just all the people making films um and telling stories the you know and having access to that it just it's just so nice it was a pretty small club back in the day and and and, uh and the hurdles were pretty high i mean tough thing now is you know back when i started you made a good film you know you make a bellows air and the whole world notices uh now you know the fights for eyeballs there's so many people making you know independent films that it's 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 hard you know, it's hard to get them noticed by the audience, by the critics, by the, you know, by the people out there.
0: And plus this last year has been so tough on the industry. I mean, there
1: there weren't films being shown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, theaters were were either shut down or working at, you know, operating at minimal capacity. Uh, It was great for the streaming services. Uh, I mean, film festivals stopped being the gathering uh, places they had been, and I mean, there were some real journeyman attempts to make it work, and, and, and some succeeded more, some succeeded less, but what was always great about film festivals is, you know, the folks you'd meet, the folks you'd meet on the shuttle buses or in the lobbies or sitting next to you waiting for something that you weren't even sure what it was to begin. Um, and, and and you know, that, that interconnection, um, you know, we, they're distortings of how to make that work. But, but, uh, man, I can't wait till we can all be in the same room again, breathing the same air
0: yeah absolutely the um we do a little something on this uh podcast called this or that in our producer kelly mascot and these are a series of comparative questions there's no right or wrong answer it's just kind of fun to talk about and so okay. let me call on kelly kelly
1: all right oh so- kelly's gonna put me on a hot seat <laughs> no these are these are fun and they're Cajun related. So you'll be fine. Um, So the first one is boudin or cracklins? Oh. Well, that's a tough one. I made so many cracklins growing up uh, that I would have to go with boudin. But I'm very particular about my boudin. I don't like too much liver. Uh, I like, I like the smoked boudin, um, you know, the best boudin source I found is like across the state in Lake Charles, I say best, best for my taste, uh, and so it's, it's it, you know, it's hard to get it, and so it's, I'm picky about that stuff, but when I, w- when I was coming up, you know, every, every year, you know, every year around Thanksgiving, we'd buy a hog. And the one rule was, you couldn't name the hog, because <laughs> <laughs> the hog was not going to come to a good end. Uh, and sometime around February, uh, we would, you know, cousins would gather and aunts and uncles would gather, and that hog would become, you know, cracklins and boudin, more boudin rouge than boudin blanc, you know, the the blood sausage, yeah, and and all the other dishes you'd make, and and head cheese and and uh, and the griots and the this and the that. Um and yeah, those are good time. Cracklins. I mean, the kids, you know, kids, we, you know, we we had our job. We had to stir that vat to get those cracklins just crispy, just right.
0: Well, cracklins when they're when they're hot and fresh are really good. It's probably best not to think that you're eating uh deep fried fat, salted, okay. But they're really good. But you, you don't want to eat them every day.
1: No, you don't want to. You don't want to eat them every day, or your days will be numbered. <laughs> but uh, actually, I just found a place, uh, a sausage source, that as a little side thing, they sell crackling dust, <laughs> which is all the crumbs that accumulate on the bottom of the pocket. And I tried, I tried spice in a dish with that. It's pretty potent. It kind of the whole thing tasted like cracklings. I'm not sure I'm going to use it again. I tell you what you do, you mix it with cornbread. Oh um, yeah. that's what they that used to do. They good. used
0: to cook their cracklings in the in their cornbread. Did you say that you all made more red boudin than the white?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Huh. I, I thought it'd be the other way around, okay. I mean no. the, red boudin is not for the squeam the squeamish. White boudin you can kind of get the vibe.
1: Anyway. Not not much of what we you know. I, yeah. As, as as you know as one of my cousins used to say if you lead an oyster you'll lead anything so <laughs> i mean i gr- we grew up on yeah so. you know sea snails and frogs and you know wild rabbit and ducks and teal and and when you couldn't get ducks or teal you'd eat coot yeah. um okay yeah pool dough as we call them yeah all right Okay, the second one is Swamp Pop or Zydeco. Oh, it depends on the mood. <laughs> it depends on the mood. Uh, if you're if you're if you're dancing, I'd say Zydeco. If you're wooing, I'd say Swamp Pop. That was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the the last one is um, crystals or Tabasco. Ah, again, it depends. It depends, if it's a soup, if it's a good oyster soup, I'd use Tabasco. But if it's a po' boy, I'd use Crystal because that Tabasco is pretty concentrated, you know. now yeah. okay. you gotta, you gotta have both. You gotta, and and as often as not, it'd be the homemade, the peppers you grow in the backyard, and you put them in a jar of vinegar and you let them sit for a few months and then few drops of that is pretty good too There you go.
0: okay that, 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 that was interesting so the uh wow the red blue that versus the white okay uh i think white blue has more for city people you know we just don't want to be thinking about the blood sausage uh, <laughs> uh part of it well just a couple more questions and we'll, we'll, we'll let you go first of all what's uh what's next what are you working on now
1: oh i i'm keep promising my wife i'm going to take a break um but never seems to happen (laughs) and so this year even in the pandemic year got the you know the novel came out and then this hour-long documentary just came out and probably what's next is another book uh which i'm still on the outlining organizing thing um and and uh Again, Michelle, my wife Michelle has been pushing me. She says, you know, every every dinner party back when, you know, before the pandemic, when we still had dinner parties, every dinner party, you you pull out these great stories, and I'm still hearing stories I never told, I never heard before. Uh, write them all down. I, and I, I've said no, I said no, I've said no for ten years now, and I'm thinking maybe okay, maybe maybe I, I ought to give that a crack. So lot, lots of tales from, it, it'll be tales from the bayou and, and a few tales of, you know, filmmaking uh, along the way.
0: And we should mention your wife, uh, Michelle Benoit, is herself a distinguished uh, writer and producer and director of films. She knows the industry too.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah she she absolutely does and has got such a great story ten- sense and, uh, and has so often... Uh, you know, saved me from my own excessive uh, imagination and or ambition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, kept me out of the deepest woods.
0: <laughs> now, you mentioned working on the book. You wrote a book a few years ago by crawfish.
1: You, the, the University Press of Mississippi had a series of uh, folk foods of the South. They had the the watermelon book, the catfish book, the sweet potato book and they hired me to do the crawfish book and I thought how hard <laughs> in my u- usual foolish naivete I thought how hard can this be you know just boil up a few crawfish and uh, and it turned out it it it's I mean crawfish it's a fascinating story I mean uh you know one of the biggest we talk about tet and mardi gras um, one of the biggest holidays in Sweden is is i I'm probably mispronouncing it. Premier, uh, which is crawfish day, <laughs> and they, they you know they they celebrate the the arrival of the first crawfish uh, of the year. Um, I mean, I found pictures of from from the twelve hundreds of people gathering crawfish under the castle walls because the church, in a very strategic move declared that crawfish were seafood, not meat. And so you could eat them during Lent, mm-hmm. which is when they're in season anyway. Sure. Uh, and, and just crawfish is uh, uh, you know the economics of it. Uh, back in the 80s when when Reagan was president and and, and uh, you know no no merger went went challenged, uh, and and you know, Federal Trade Commission had nothing to investigate. They started investigating the crawfish industry for price fixing and indicted a lot of people. Uh, just you know, and then the 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 biology of it, and you know, you know, Huxley, famous, the British, famously, he called them crayfish, but using that as the 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 thing for all these young students to dissect in classes and and as he's done ever since. Um so yeah, it was there. not be a you know fascinating story. Fun to write to. I bet the people
0: in Sweden, in Sweden don't suck the heads.
1: You know, I went while doing that book, I went to this plant in Brobridge and I and those this is all gone away because they found different suppliers now, the sweets. Um but you had the owner and you had about 30, 40 women, mostly women, uh working there, mostly speaking Creole. Okay, not not French, not Cajun, but Creole, uh, you know, sorting the the, the crawfish. And you had this guy, this very blonde, tall, Viking-looking fellow from Sweden who was the inspector. And every cross. Crawsh- you know, if a crawfish didn't have both its eyes out, it went if it had lost the claw out, it went only because they were paying so much for these things back in Sweden that only the biggest, most perfect specimens uh, were packed up so they could ship them to Sweden and cook them with dill, which is something we'd never do here and uh, and uh, and eat them. Wear, wear the silly paper hats and drink the Aquavit, which is basically moonshine <laughs> and, uh, and eat their crawfish.
0: It almost seems like a waste of good crawfish. If you send them some, uh, <laughs> some some shrimp from Texas or something, but anyway, <laughs> I mean, Glenn has been fascinating. I, I like Tell the people now, if they uh, first of all they want to see *Mary Queen of Vietnam* or if they want to see any of their other works. I, I know it involves the website. What should they do?
1: Uh, yeah, if if you go to Cajun movies, one word. Cajun movies, one word together. Uh, dot com. Uh, you're going to see, you know, the the movies, the documentaries, the books, both fiction and nonfiction. Also, you know, we didn't talk about museums, but, I've, you know, I've done exhibits for probably three dozen museums, mostly here in Louisiana, you know, for the Presbyterian, the Cabildo, and the Historic New Orleans Collection, and this one, and that one. Um,
0: well, I want to testify on that point, because one time, was in Quebec and the museum in Quebec had an exhibit I think it was about the Acadians but anyway it was you Uh, (laughs) if if you put it up or was your voice but it was you it was was kind of like your exhibit at a museum in Quebec
1: yeah yeah I did things in there's one in Montreal called the Museum of Civilization which had done this thing they they had uh exhibits from 12 countries, and they picked me for America to do it. And I, and I built it around my uncle Elvis. My, my mother had two brothers, uh, Edwis and Elvis. And Edwis had passed on, but Elvis was still alive. And he, Elvis was visiting Edwis in, in the cemetery and having chats with him. And that became the, the basis of the exhibit that appeared in Montreal. But anyway, yeah.
0: Okay. Maybe it was the Montreal Museum. Well, no, there with... was
1: one in Quebec City as well. Uh, even both okay. So what's... Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I
0: feel comfortable with Quebec. Okay. Yeah.
1: So. Oh, yeah.
0: So, yeah, very diverse. So, okay. So, go to that website again. It's cajunmovies.com. Movies...
1: Cajun cajunmovies.com. W- www.cajunmovies.com. And you'll, I mean, it's pretty easy navigation from there. On. Okay.
0: And if someone wants to see the entire Mary Queen of Vietnam. Uh, so now they can access it there or.
1: Well, on that site, you basically just access the, you know, excerpts and trailers and things, but it it tells you where to go. It tells you where to find them. Yeah. 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 Uh, Okay. Because those things, you know, having done this, as long as I've done it, there, you know, there are movies I made that I own and control, but there are movies I made that, you know, yeah. If I want a copy, I got to get off Amazon, like everybody else, because yeah, sure. it okay. belongs to somebody else. Yeah.
0: Well, keep it up. Your work is uh,
1: important. And vice versa, my friend. Vice versa.
0: Yeah, it has been fun. Kind Let's do this again. It's really be good. Yeah,
1: it's been a treat. It's been a it real is.
0: treat. By the way, he lives. Well, you don't live, but you own a uh, a firehouse, right? Isn't it your office a firehouse?
1: I was saying earlier, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. We bought a house uh on Marnie street and it had it for 10 years and when and we're looking around for a studio we needed space we needed space and the city auctioned off a firehouse on the next block but it backed up to our our oh. our backyard uh with a big brick wall that we could you know after we bought it at auction and renovated we cut a hole in the wall and put a gate so we can go back and forth oh, yeah. um yeah so the firehouse is our studio and lots of other young filmmakers and, and and writers and artists are here as well with us uh yeah it's well
0: the film what beasts of the southern wild
1: they were based here when they made that yeah
0: yeah that they use your office for it was
1: yeah they used the, the fire in fact we had just gotten it and we we're just starting to renovate
0: yeah
1: uh and when they came by and said, said well, it was really not ready and they said well it's ready enough and in fact for people who've seen those movies the uh the aurochs which were like putt-bellied actually putt-bellied pigs before the special effects got to them uh were trained in our backyard so i'd be walking between the house and the office and it'd be this you know young woman going stay (laughs) i'd stop and she'd realize she's talking to the to the the pig
0: well this shows if you got a story about pot-bellied pigs being trained in your backyard that if we go on, there's no end to the story series. <laughs> like, gonna I'm not going to run
1: out. I'm not going to run out on you at all.
0: maybe we need to try again next time. But anyway, it's, it's been delightful. Thank you, Glenn.
1: Okay. It's okay, Bye-bye. and
0: that was uh, uh, Glenn Petrie, filmmaker. Yeah, look up his work. Look up his website and and see the things he did. Thank you all, and be back next time. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.